Good morning, friends. Hey, if you come to the men's bonfire on Friday night, I promise that we will sit around a real fire, not a digital fire. Right? It'll be nice and warm. It'll be great. Uh, My name is Matt, and I'm a pastor here at Friendship Church, and I am Kenny's backup when he is not here. And so I get to be the one who brings the message today in our Speak Life series, a series that is all about how important our words are. Uh, Our verse that goes along with this series is Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, that says, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Our words have an incredible power to bring harm to others or to do great good for God and his kingdom. And as we've looked at this, we've seen that words of life are words of truth. And words of life, Kenny said last week, are words of encouragement. Now today we're going to see that words of life are words that bring unity to the body of Christ. Words that bring unity to the body of Christ. Many of you know that I have two kids. They are college-aged, and they both happen to go to colleges that are in the Chicago area, about 40 minutes apart. And a couple of weeks ago, our daughter took her car and went and picked up our son, and the two of them spent a Saturday together. They went and got coffee. They went grocery shopping. They went to a park together. They went and got food together. They went and got coffee together. Again. Twice in six hours, they got coffee together. They called us during that time, and the four of us just spent like an hour on the phone together, and nothing excites my parent heart like watching my two kids love and care for each other well and experience unity and oneness together. And I got to say, there were days I never thought we would get here. Uh, Because there were so many days that were filled with with fighting and one of my kids mistreating the other. And nothing breaks my parental heart or or frustrates me as a parent. Like when my kids would mistreat each other and not get along, would fight with each other. And I think the Bible indicates that God's father heart works like that as well. That he is excited when his children love and care for each other well and experience unity and oneness and that it frustrates him and makes his heart sad when his children experience division with each other. So much so that in Jesus' primary prayer in the gospel, the focus of that prayer is the oneness and unity of his followers. In John chapter 17 Jesus is praying, and just to take a couple of verses out of that prayer, he says, I do not ask for these only, the disciples sitting around him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, people like us, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What an amazing prayer we have here from Jesus. He says that the focus here is that, the, is that they would be one. How one does he want us to be? As one as the Father and the Son are one. How one is that? That's really one, isn't it? Right? That's really united. And what does Jesus say depends upon our unity and our oneness? People believing that the Father sent the Son. 
gospel effectiveness depends upon the unity and the oneness that we have as the body of Christ. He says, let them be one so that the world will believe that you sent me. That's what he prays to the Father. Gospel effectiveness depends on the unity and the oneness of the body. So how important is oneness? How important is unity? Can't stress it enough. It is the heart of God, which is why the New Testament is filled with passages that say things like this. Ephesians 4.3, maintain the unity of the Spirit. Philippians 2.2, be of the same mind, have the same love, and be in full accord. Romans 15.5, live in complete unity with one another. 1 Peter 3.8, have unity of mind. Romans 12.16, live in harmony with one another. Philippians 1.27, stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. You get the idea. I could go on speed reading verses from the New Testament about unity and oneness for a long time here because God's heart loves it when his children are one and united together. And because God loves unity, he points out to us some ways that we might use our words that damage unity within the body of Christ. The Bible gives us different ways that we might use our words that could do damage to that unity that God loves and that is so important. And this morning, we're going to cover three ways that the Bible says we could use our words that will damage that unity that's so important to God. The first is this, gossip. Talking about someone else negatively behind their back. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 28 says... A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. Now, some of your Bibles, instead of whisperer, say a gossip separates close friends, because the Hebrew word here doesn't simply mean someone who's a quiet talker. It means someone who is talking quietly because they're talking about someone else. Right? A whisperer or gossip does what? They create division. Proverbs 17, 9, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. There are people who are going to hurt us. There are times we do wrong. People make decisions that we don't like or don't agree with. A person who loves others covers over that. That is, they don't talk about it all the time with other people. But, but a gossip or a whisperer, they'll go and talk about, can you believe they made that decision? Can you believe they did this? And what is the effect of that when people repeat a matter? Again, it creates division. And so why does gossip damage the unity that God so desires for us to have? Why does it damage souls? Proverbs 18.8 gives us a little picture. It says, the words of a whisperer or gossip are like delicious morsels. They go down into the inner parts of the body. If I come to you today and I say negative things about Pastor Kenny behind his back, right? I'm going to find some negative things. I'm out to find... No, I'm not really out to find them. But if I come to you and I say some negative things about Pastor Kenny behind his back, that does immense amounts of damage. It damages my soul because I'm sinning in the midst of doing that. It damages our relationship because now you know you can't trust me. If I'm willing to talk about Kenny behind his back, what's to say I'm not going to talk about you behind your back? But it also damages your relationship with Kenny and what you think of him because you can't unhear what I just said. 
That's what Proverbs 18 is talking about. The things that I just said about Pastor Kenny, they go down to your innermost parts. And even if in your head you go, I don't think I agree with Matt on that, it still impacts how we think and see him. Right? And so, so what we need to understand here is unity does, I'm sorry, uh, gossip does damage. It does damage to unity. It does damage to our souls. It does damage to relationships. And so what does Jesus teach us? Direct communication, right, in situations. Matthew chapter 5. Hey, somebody, uh, you hurt somebody, go directly to them and deal with it. Matthew chapter 18. Hey, somebody hurt you, go directly to them and deal with it. But we need to understand that gossip damages souls, it damages unity. And so God wants us to understand that speaking gossip is wrong, but he also wants us to understand that listening to gossip is wrong. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 4, an evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to mischievous tongue. It isn't just wrong to talk about somebody negatively behind their back. It's sinful and wrong to listen to someone talk negatively about them behind their back. And so what do I do if someone comes to me and starts to say, hey, you know, have you heard about what so-and-so did? Or can you believe that they did this? What do I do in that situation? I encourage the kind of communication that Jesus encouraged. I say, hey, sounds like you're frustrated with that person. Let's go and talk to them. Let's go and work this out. Let's go and seek reconciliation. But I certainly don't sit and listen to them talk negatively about that person behind their back. Because the first way that unity can be damaged by our words is through gossip. And we don't want to be a people of gossip. The second way is through grumbling. We don't want to be a people of gossip. We don't want to be a people of grumbling and complaining. The Old and New Testament has all kinds of commands for us about not grumbling and complaining. And we see people grumbling and complaining throughout the Old and New Testament, but nowhere more than as the nation of Israel wanders through the wilderness, as God miraculously brings them out of Egypt and brings them to a promised land that will be all their own, they do nothing but grumble and complain along the way. It's easier to find chapters where they're not grumbling and complaining than, chapters, than to note the chapters where they are, because they are constantly grumbling and complaining. Uh, Exodus 14, they're grumbling and complaining because... They're afraid the Egyptians are going to kill them. Exodus 15, they're grumbling and complaining because they're thirsty. Exodus 16, they're grumbling and complaining because they are hungry. Exodus 17, grumbling because they're thirsty again. Now, you guys, these are all legitimate needs, right? Hunger, thirst, not being slaughtered by the Egyptians, right? These are all kind of important. The problem isn't that they brought it up. The problem is the manner in which they brought it up. Instead of prayerfully working together on the issue. They grumbled and complained about God. They grumbled and complained about their leaders. It isn't that they shouldn't have said something. It's how they chose to bring it up. They chose to grumble and complain about their leaders, and things only got worse from there in terms of their grumbling and complaining. That that should say Numbers chapter 11, not Exodus 11. And in Numbers 11, the people of God are grumbling and complaining about God's miraculous provision of food. God is daily providing for them miracle food. And in Numbers 11, the people are like, but God, it doesn't come in enough flavors. 
Now the rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. What do they say? They say, we wish we were back in Egypt where we had the kinds of foods that made our breath stink. Right? We had onions and garlic and cucumbers. We long for those days, those days of slavery where we were being worked to death. Did they really long for that? Probably not. But we will say anything when we are grumbling and complaining, won't we? We'll say anything in those situations. God doesn't want his people grumbling and complaining, so he disciplined them by sending a plague upon his people because he doesn't want them to be about grumbling and complaining. So they learned their lesson, right? No, no. Uh, Three chapters later, uh, not Exodus 14, but Numbers 14, now the people are complaining because they've discovered that God's going to have to defeat some people in the promised land in order for them to take hold of it. And they, and they grumble, and all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in the wilderness. Again, they are grumbling and complaining, and God disciplines them again. He says, There is no one from this grumbling and complaining generation who will enter into the promised land. I'm going to start with a whole new generation because of all of your grumbling and complaining. Well, well, that discipline must have done it, right? No, a couple chapters later, the Levites are grumbling about the amount of authority that Moses and Aaron have. They want a different system of governance within Israel, a system in which they have more say. And so they are grumbling about Moses and Aaron and the amount of authority that they have. And as they're grumbling about Moses and Aaron, God is so tired of their grumbling and complaining that he literally causes the earth to open up in an earthquake and it swallows these Levites who are grumbling and complaining. Now, how do the people of Israel react to that? They don't like the discipline God brought by swallowing them up. So they grumble and complain about God's discipline and the fact that the earth opened up and swallowed these people. And so God, i got to believe, shakes his head at this point. And says, more grumbling and complaining, and he sends a plague upon the people. Because he kind of wants this to get through. Guys, no grumbling and complaining. When Israel gave in to grumbling and complaining over and over again, they were giving in to the way of the world. This is how the world communicates about life, through grumbling and complaining. I... uh, read a few years ago some of the comment cards that were given to the U.S. Forest Service about trails in the national forests. The cards included some complaints like this. Trails need to be wider so people can walk while holding hands. There are too many bugs and spiders and spider webs along the trails. Pave the trails so that they can be plowed of snow in the winter. Chairlifts need to be in some places so that we can get to views without having to hike to them. And my favorite, the places where trails do not exist are not well marked. (laughs) Now, I'm sure some of these comment cards were jokes. They have to be, right? 
But that doesn't change the fact that grumbling and complaining are a national pastime for us. They are the way of the world. We grumble about our food when it's not quite right. We complain about our bosses. We grumble about our jobs. We complain about our schools. We grumble about our teachers. We complain about our politicians, no matter who is elected. We grumble and complain about everything. And that is never to enter in to God's church, right? That's the way that the world communicates. God's church is never to be a people that communicate like that. It's never to be a, p- a place where people come and I, I don't really like the way that person runs their ministry or I don't really like the way they're handling COVID-19 or I don't really like the music that was chosen or I don't really like the parking situation or I don't really like how long the grass got or I don't, right? As soon as the church begins to be filled with statements like that, it is the world. Because grumbling and complaining is the way of the world. And so God says, I don't want that kind of communication ever in my body. Philippians 2, 14 and 15. Do all things, what what percentage of things? Right, Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Some of your Bibles say complaining there. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. What is it that separates God's people from the world, according to this passage? It's the lack of grumbling and complaining within his people. They won't damage their souls or damage unity in that way. And so God says, don't gossip and don't grumble. Those things will damage your soul and they damage unity. The third and final way that we're going to look at today, that we can use our words in a way that damages unity is through quarreling or arguing. Sorry, I didn't come up with a third G. I feel like I failed you. Uh, Gossip, grumbling, and quarreling or arguing. One of you is going to yell something out, I can tell. So the final, uh, as we look at this, we are never to be a people who quarrel and argue, particularly about non-essential issues. The Bible has a lot to say about people not quarreling or arguing about non-essential issues in passages like 2 Timothy 2, Titus chapter 3, Romans 14. Again and again, God is commanding us, don't be a people who argue or quarrel about the non-essentials. What are the non-essentials? What do I mean by that? Well, in order to explain to that, I'd like to go back to a diagram that we've looked at before in here. Let's represent those things that are essential, those things about which the Scripture is absolutely clear with a black box. Should you commit adultery? No, never. It's very clear. Should you kill an innocent human being? Right? No, never. Born or unborn, that's murder. Should you use your words to tear somebody down? I, I hope we've made that case. Right? No, never. Should you set aside time in your life in order to directly worship God with your fellow believers? Yes, Hebrews 10 says absolutely you should. There are things that are quite clear in Scripture, and we're to be obedient to those things. But there are other things in the Bible about which the Scripture isn't clear or it doesn't speak at all. Let's represent that with the larger gray box. Items that are unclear or unmentioned in Scripture. A while back, I made a list of a few of these things. Here here are some. The Bible doesn't say anything about how we are to school our children. 
Should they be homeschooled, Christian schooled, public school? And yet, there's all kinds of different opinions in this room among parents about the best way to school children. The Bible isn't clear about where a line should be drawn, about which movies and TV shows are okay to watch and which ones aren't. And yet there'd be all kinds of different opinions in this room about where that line should be drawn. The Bible tells us that we are never to be drunk, and yet there'd be all kinds of opinions in this room about whether or not we should drink alcohol at all. The Bible tells us that we're to use our resources for the good of the kingdom of God. And yet there would be a myriad of opinions in here about how much you can spend on yourself before you're wasting God's resources. The Bible doesn't address how the believer is to dress when we worship, and yet there'd be different opinions. Or what kind of musical styles we should sing to, and yet there'd be all kinds of different opinions. The Bible doesn't address how serious COVID is, or what the best way to prevent it is. But I guarantee in this room there are all kinds of different opinions. I could go on like this forever, couldn't I? Now, 2,000 years ago, they had different gray box issues, didn't they? Different uh, non-essential issues. What were the gray box issues they were dealing with in the New Testament? They were things like, should you eat meat that has been sacrificed to an idol? Should you keep the Jewish holy days or the Sabbath? Should you continue to observe the Jewish dietary laws? Or if you were a Gentile, start to observe the Jewish dietary laws. These are the kinds of gray box issues that they deal with in the New Testament. And one of the primary passages where we see them dealt with, a passage that is so important to how we deal with these kinds of issues today, is Romans 14, which says this is all about matters of opinion. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Now, some of your Bibles, instead of the word opinions, uses the phrase disputable matters here. Some of your Bibles say opinions, some say disputable matters. But the idea here are those non-essentials, those gray box areas about which the scripture is not clear. And Romans 14 gives us principles that we're to live by in these gray box areas. I don't have time to cover all the principles, unfortunately, today. But let me give you a couple. First, in those gray box, non-essential areas, we're to always seek to do what honors God the most. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. No matter what choices we make in these gray box, non-essential areas, we do it for what purpose? To honor the Lord. And so when it comes to these non-essential areas, I don't hold my opinions because my parents happen to hold those opinions or my friends happen to hold those opinions or my pastor happens to hold those opinions. I hold those opinions because I have carefully and prayerfully uh, worked through what is it that honors the Lord the most in these situations. I, I don't hold my opinions in these areas because it's the most lucrative or the most comfortable or the most in alignment with my political ideology. I hold my opinions in these areas because I have prayerfully worked through them and believe it honors the Lord the most. Which, by the way, the rest of Romans 14 says, the Lord is the most honored when we choose to love other people with the decisions we make in these areas. Rather than claiming my rights, if I choose to instead make decisions based on what loves you the most, 
Those are decisions that honor God. Now, one thing that is so important for us to understand is it is possible for us to come to different conclusions in these gray box, non-essential areas and both be right with the Lord in it. You can honor the Lord by making one choice in a gray box area and I can honor the Lord by making another choice as long as we are motivated by honoring the Lord and loving other people. And so you may choose to school your children in one way and I may choose to school my children in another. And in this non-essential area, we can both be right if we are seeking to honor the Lord and love others. Now, I got to say this just to review. That is not true in black box areas. We cannot make different decisions in black box areas and both honor the Lord. Right? It's not like you can honor the Lord by being faithful to your wife and I can honor the Lord by being unfaithful to my wife. That's not the way the black box works. It's not like you can honor the Lord by building people up with your words and I can honor the Lord by tearing people down with my words. That's not the way the black box works. Right? In the black box, there is one way to honor the Lord and that is through obedience to what he has said. But in the gray box, in non-essential areas, we can both honor the Lord through different decisions, which brings us to the second essential that we need to understand about here. In the gray box, we are never to judge or quarrel. We're never to judge others or quarrel. Verse 3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. They're dealing with their own set of gray box issues. And he's saying, you guys, whatever choice you make in this gray box area, Do it to honor the Lord and don't judge or look down on others if they've come to a different opinion about this. He he also says in verse 1, don't quarrel or argue over it. We may all make different decisions in these gray box areas. The key is our motive. Are we doing it to honor the Lord and love others? If that's true, we can come to different conclusions and both be right. I've shared with you before an example of a friend's church that went oh so wrong in this area where the church wound up virtually splitting over how people should dress when they came to worship on Sunday morning. Which makes an enormous amount of sense because of all that Jesus had to say about clothes in the New Testament, right? That was sarcasm. (laughs) One group thought you should dress up for church. After all, when you're coming to church, you're coming together in order to worship who? God Almighty! And we're to bring our very best in every area when we come to worship him. And if people don't do their best in dressing up, then do they even know who it is they're coming to worship? Another group said, we should never dress up when we come to worship. We're trying to reach the young families around us. And dressing up only puts a barrier between them and coming and being a part of our worship. Why would we put that barrier in place? Not only that, Do we only meet with the Lord on Sundays? Why would we only dress up on Sundays? Don't we meet with the Lord each and every day of our life? And so there were these two different opinions. Probably more than two, but I've represented two opinions. And eventually the church had to have a series of meetings in order to try and resolve wardrobe gate. And people wound up leaving the church. Many people wound up leaving the church. Why? Because a group of people couldn't be obedient to the word of God. 
and what he says in Romans 14 about how to handle non-essential matters. To, To not judge one another, look down upon one another, or quarrel and argue about them. God wants us to understand when we choose to quarrel and argue about non-essentials, that that again damages our soul. And what else does it damage? Our our unity that he loves so much. And so we don't want to be a people who gossip, grumble, quarrel, or argue. Because that damages the unity that God wants us to have. Instead, what kind of people do we want to be? We want to be a kind of a people who foster and maintain the unity that we have, right? Isn't that what we want? We want to be a people who live in oneness and unity together. Instead of damaging that unity, we want to maintain and build up that unity that we have through what God has done. How do we do that? How do I become a person who fosters and maintains unity rather than breaking it down? Well, Since Jesus says that it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks, I can't just focus on trying to speak words of unity. I have to have a life that is about unity. Uh, Our words always represent what is in our heart. So much so that the first week of this series, we looked at Matthew chapter 12 where Jesus says, we can be justified or condemned on the day of judgment based on our words. Because they're such an accurate reflection of our heart. And because our words are simply the overflow of our heart, of the central place of our life, if we're going to be people of unity, our heart has to be a heart of unity. We have to be all about unity, which means we got to be focused on the things that we have in common rather than the things that we have that are different. We got to be focused on the things we have in common rather than the things that we have that we don't have in common. And there are this set of things that we have in common as followers of Jesus. They're the most important things there are in the world. And there are a set of things that maybe we don't have in common. And they are not nearly as important as the things over here that we have in common. There's all kinds of things we don't have in common. Do we all root for the same professional football team? Right? Who in here? No, never mind. Right? Are we all Vikings fans? No, there's less each week. Right? Uh, Do do we all love hip-hop music? Right? Do we all love country music? Are are we all going to vote for the exact same set of candidates? Are we all going to school our kids in the same ways? There's all kinds of things where we don't have commonality. And God says, that's okay, because those are less important things. I have given you total commonality in the things that are most important in life. What are those things? That you have a common leader. There's nothing more important in our life than that we have given our life totally and completely over to the same leader. Who is that leader? Sunday school answer. That's right. Nice work. Yeah, absolutely. It's Jesus. We've given our life totally and completely over to Jesus. And every decision and every motivation flows out of his leadership in our life and what he has to say. Uh, There was a study done years ago 
at Columbia University in New York. And the study asked different members of the Columbia Orchestra to register one-word responses of what they thought about people in other areas of that orchestra. And when they were asked, oops, when they were asked, other members of the orchestra said this about percussionists. Here's the words they came up with about percussionists. They are insensitive, unintelligent, and hard of hearing. String players were seen as arrogant, stuffy, and unathletic. Brass players were seen as loud and bullheaded. Woodwind players were seen as meticulous and egotistical. The study then asked, how can people who feel this way about each other and who are so very different in life come together and make such beautiful music as the Columbia Orchestra does? And the study concluded it is because they totally and completely subject themselves to a common leader. No matter how they feel about themselves, no matter what flourishes they may want to give to the music, they totally and completely submit themselves to the director and the way that he is asking them to do it. And the same is true for us. We're very different people with all kinds of different thoughts, but we experience total unity when we come under and submit ourselves to Jesus in every area of our life. That's what Romans 15.5 says, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. We only have harmony and unity when we are in accord with Jesus Christ, when we are following after him. If what is leading my life are my own wishes and desires, then there's no unity. If what is leading my life are the thoughts of political heroes or celebrity heroes, then there's no unity. If what is leading my life is what's most lucrative for me or what's most comfortable, there's no unity among the body. It is only when we are totally and completely motivated by following after Jesus that we can experience the unity that God calls for. Only then, only then, when following after Jesus moves so much to the forefront of our life that every other subject fades into the background, only then can we experience the unity that God has for us. When our common leader moves totally to the foreground and everything else in life moves to the background. The other thing that brings unity to us that is so essential in life, flows out of that common leader, and that's the common mission that he has given to us. We have a mission together that totally unites us. You've experienced how a mission can unite people at some point in your life. I remember playing football, and there were so many different people who were a part of that football team, from from nerds who never got anything but an A to people who could barely spell their own name. We had people on that football team who were super popular and people who didn't have a friend in the world. But when we came together out on that field, there was total unity and oneness because we had a common mission about winning that game that we were playing. And God says, you guys, I've given you a far greater mission than that to bring you together. The mission of spreading my message, the mission of spreading the kingdom of God. And it is when you are focused on that mission that you'll experience unity. As a church, when we get focused on things that are 
less than the mission, we don't experience the unity that God wants for us. When we get focused on our own whims, our wishes, our desires, there's no unity there. But when we are focused on how do we reach the people around us with the gospel of Jesus, there's unity in that. And so what is the key to us being people of unity, speaking words of unity? It's having a heart that is totally focused on our common leader and common mission so that everything else fades into the background. I love the way Dietrich Bonhoeffer put it in his book, Life Together, before he was killed by the Nazis. He writes, The more genuine and deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede the more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. We want to experience the unity that God has for us that only comes when the priority of our life is following after Jesus and the mission that he's given to us. And everything else in life fades into the background by comparison. I'd invite you all to just take a moment and think about where you are with that. What is it that's been most important to your heart? What is it that's been most important in your life? As you think about your words and the things that you have been saying, are they focused on that leader, on that mission? Or are they focused elsewhere on lesser things? It is so important that our heart is focused on him Because it is out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. We have an opportunity today to focus ourselves, to to perhaps refocus ourselves once again on the one thing that truly matters in life, our common leader. Uh, He has given us this practice of the Lord's Supper, communion, in order to redirect our hearts and minds to him again and again. And so I would invite you to take out these elements that you grabbed as you were on your way in. And if you're a follower of Jesus, we want you to take these elements with us this morning. God has given us this practice as a way to draw our hearts and our minds back to Jesus, to remember him, to refocus on him as the focus of our life. And so this morning, I'd invite you to take the bread out of the container. And remember that the bread represents Jesus' body that was given for you because God loves you, because God sacrificed for you. And as you remember that this bread represents the body of Jesus, I would encourage you to eat it all in remembrance of him. And if you would carefully open up the cup. Jesus says the cup represents his blood that has been shed for the forgiveness of our sins. I want to encourage you as you take a moment here before we drink the cup to just focus on him, his love, his mercy, his grace in our lives his goodness, his eternal provision. And as we focus our hearts and minds around our common leader, I'd encourage you to drink this all in remembrance of him.
Now, friends, I encourage you to stand with me and let's praise our great God in song as we continue to focus our hearts and minds on Jesus, the one thing who truly matters above all else in this life. Let's worship and praise him together.